In today's fireside chat, I'm talking to Frank Cespedes. One of the biggest questions in any M&A transaction is the future growth potential of a company. But how do we determine if a sales organization is set up for success and how do we integrate different sales organizations after our transaction? Frank is one of the world's most renowned experts on sales management and teaches at Harvard Business School. He was a managing partner at a professional services firm and he's written for publications including the Harvard Business Review and the Wall Street Journal. Frank has authored six books including Aligning Strategy and Sales, which was cited as perhaps the best sales book ever by Forbes. His newest book is Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Welcome to the Open IC. It is my pleasure uh, to speak with you and your audience at Fintel. Your new book, Sales Management That Works, is marketed as a practical and research-based guide for managers, salespeople, and investors. Why does sales management actually matter for investors? When you're an investor, you're not investing in yesterday or even today. You're investing in the future. And in order to get a good return on that investment, typically you've got to grow the asset. You've got to grow the company. And usually it has to be profitable growth. Now, I frankly don't care whether we call profitable growth sales, business development, or asparagus, but it typically means acquiring and retaining more customers. That's what I mean by sales. There's another reason that I think investors are interested in this topic and increasingly interested, and by the way, established corporations as well, especially in software ventures and in subscription business models, And notice that both software and subscription uh, business models are being increasingly integrated in more and more companies. In businesses like that, once you get beyond product development, typically selling and marketing expenses are by far the biggest ongoing expense in the business. So that's another reason I think investors and for that matter, you know, company managers are interested in the topic. Frank, I have to tell you why I also find this super interesting. When I started my career, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. And just about a year after I started, I worked in the local sales organization in Germany. Uh, we bought another company, so not I was very junior in that. In my marketing role there, we bought another company that had more of a natural remedies instead of the, the chemical remedies that we had and integrating that sales uh, team into our team was very interesting because we are a billion a billion dollar corporation and we integrated that little that local competitor and that was a long process and i think it also shaped my career so i'm really curious to see what uh, what your opinion on on these processes is and how you yeah how, what do you advise people and, and investors and companies yeah. to do that go through that well, process i mean i think the the basic issue is to make sure that you, the acquiring company, whoever's doing both the due diligence and then the M&A execution, understand what the merger means for the important sales tasks in the merged entity. And by sales tasks, I mean, what are those things where our customer contact people, what, what is it that they need to be very good at versus where they just need to be good enough? What is it that we're asking sales to do as opposed to what the marketing people can do or the customer service people or someone else? 
And within M&A in particular, in my experience there, and you know, my experience there is not inconsiderable, you're often bringing together groups whose behaviors and key tasks were different before the merger. So you have to know going in, what is it that can be shared and cannot be shared? And then I think you've got to be very clear, and many, many companies are not, You've got to be very clear and focused about what are the common goals of the merged entity. For example, one of the probably most common impacts on sales after a merger is now we're going to be cross-selling. We brought together your products with our products, and now we can cross-sell, right? When you talk to your relationships, talk to them also about these other products, but that that very often doesn't work out. Why? Well, it turns out that you may or may not have the same buyer, the same decision-making unit for those other products. And secondly, this is, I think, just a basic fact about salespeople and selling. The worst thing that can happen to a salesperson is not that the customer says no. You know, salespeople who can't deal with rejection get weeded out pretty early in their career. The mm. worst thing that can happen is that Absolutely. you're talking about a new product or a product that's been acquired after an M&A. And the person you're speaking to at the customer is interested in that product. But the truth is after about five minutes, you've exhausted your knowledge about that product, but the customer keeps asking mm. questions. Now, what do most salespeople do in that situation? We know what they should do. They should say, listen, let me bring in someone who really knows about this. But what most salespeople do in that situation is turn the conversation back to topics they're comfortable with. In other words, what they've always been selling. So that, that would be my advice about that. Make sure you know the tasks, what can be shared, what can't be shared, and what this means for the buying process. Most important thing about selling is the buyer, not the seller. Hiring works differently in every, pretty much every country company that I know. And it's always, it comes down to the philosophy of the leadership, uh, I think. And in your book, you mentioned that the data input for our hiring process doesn't indicate the future potential performance. Now, This is particularly interesting, of course, in a, in a merger, because you just mentioned some things can be shared, some things can be integrated, some things can't be integrated. But when you now, you're the due diligence party, when you look at a company's hiring process just from the outside, are there any particular indicators that you can look at that can tell you, you know what, I think this company's got it covered? Because obviously, this is a process that is so ingrained into the company. It's very difficult to see from the outside. It often takes months to just understand it when you're in the inside. So from the outside, it can be very difficult. So what would you look at? Which indicators do you look at when you yeah. would look at an, 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 an yeah, sales department yeah. from the outside? Well, I the think hiring the first process. thing to recognize here, and I think what good hiring processes do is recognize this basic fact. There are inherent challenges in sales hiring that just do not exist to the same extent in most other business functions. I'll give you an example. If you need to hire an engineer, you can go to a school and it's a little bit like walking into a food court. What are you interested in? Electrical engineering, 
mechanical engineering, chemical engineering. If you're looking to hire someone in finance or accounting, or for that matter, a computer programmer, you can find people who majored in those topics. But I'm going to use data from the United States, but this is one area where virtually every other country in the world is worse than the United States. Of the 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States, the last time I looked, which was about two and a half years ago when I started writing this book, less than 200 of those colleges and universities even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program. So this is an area of business where most people start out knowing very little, in fact, almost nothing about what they're going to do for a living. So there are challenges there. Now, the common practices in sales hiring make a tough job needlessly tougher. For one thing, there is a dramatic over-reliance in sales hiring on unstructured interviews. Now, what I'm about to cite to you, the data I'm about to cite to you, Tobias, is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear from a business school professor. It's supported by over 60 years of consistent research. The correlations between the evaluations that people get in interviews and their subsequent actual on-the-job performance tend to vary from about 0.1 to 0.4. In other words, even in the best of circumstances, it's less than the 50-50 rate of flipping a coin. And yet, that's the way most sales hiring works. One or two interviews, we say yes or no. So what is it that good companies do? They recognize that this is an especially tough hiring task because people are not getting previous training. Secondly, they don't rely on just one or two interviews. They do multiple interviews. For example, I, you know, I do a lot of work with companies, with early stage ventures, with private equity firms. And one of the things I always tell them in sales hiring, let's make sure we also get the product people and the customer success people to do some of the sales hiring interviews. And they say, why? And I tell them that those are the people who have to deal with the outcomes of sales tasks. What does that mean for customizing our product? What will it mean for service? So you want to get multiple interviews. And then the final comment I would make is that sales is the ultimate performance art in business. Sales and selling is ultimately about behavior. It's not about how, you know, how Mm -hmm. smart we were in an interview. It's not about simply the attitude. Absolutely. It's about the actual behavior. So whenever you can in sales hiring, you want to put in place relevant behavioral assessments. Those would be the items I cite about that topic. When we look at this from the outside, you just mentioned, okay, you would look at the relative behavioral assessments and, and it's essentially a random process and, and integrating these other functions. I think that's a critical thing to look at when you say, okay, we want to look at 
what other how many other departments are integrated into the sales process and maybe just ask a couple of other departments how what they think about the hiring process in the sales department that's something i've seen go go wrong many many times in many different different companies especially and, in, in and the middle stage of these scale up companies well, this in you know my book in part talks about this but that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue because one of the big changes going on in virtually all markets around the world is a change in buying right we now live in a world yeah. where so-called omni-channel buying is the norm. And what I mean by that is that customers' prospects are both online and offline at multiple times throughout their buying journeys. And one of the yeah. things that technology is doing is making the selling company more transparent to the buyer. In other words, they can touch Yep. multiple people virtually in the company. So the cross-functional interactions in sales are growing tremendously. Yet another reason why I think you see yep. that increasingly as an issue in a lot of uh, M&A activity. I think that is also critical to look at when I, when I look at these companies. Because often what I've noticed over the last years is that even with companies that have relatively high annual contract value, you see that more and more revenue responsibility also shifts to marketing from sales. So sales gets becomes a very, very specialized skill set that goes more and more over to handling really complex flows and not so much about the customer acquisition anymore. Now, if we if we have two fundamentally different hiring practices, how what is the weakest link that we need to get right if we want to bring those two companies together? I get us back to basics. What does the merger mean for our strategy? Anything we do in sales should support the strategy, not the other way yeah. around. Okay, so what does the merger mean? Why are we doing the merger? The merger of the M&A has to be justified in, in strategic terms. It has to be justified that, you know, two plus two is not just four, but it's going to be a bit more than four. So what does that mean for the strategy? Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, how does that affect any change in the legacy sales tasks that we're uh, bringing on board. And then I think what good companies and managers do is they understand that managers must manage. They use the levers that are available to affect the selling behaviors they need. And, and the levers, I think, basically fall into three categories. The first and usually the most important is people. Who are we hiring? How do we train them? How do we socialize them into the new organization? The second is our performance management practices. What are the metrics we're going to look at? What does this mean for compensation uh, and incentives? And in general, what is, how does this affect performance reviews? And then the third area, and this I think is especially important in M&A, but it's cultural issues. You know, sales is in many, for many people doing due diligence is the last thing they think about in their due diligence. And that's completely wrong. It should be one of the first things you think about for the reason I mentioned earlier. We're doing this M&A to accrete value. And that usually means profitable growth. So what does it mean for sales? What will or will not be the interactions between sales and other functions. All of that, I think, are, are some of the things you need to look at.
when you have that two different companies that have two fundamentally different performance review systems, now often what happens, of course, after integration is you evaluate, okay, we now have a bigger team and we probably want to want to scale down the team. We want to synchronize the team. We want to make sure the team is as effective as possible. What is the first thing you want to look at when you then look at this performance review system and say, okay, which one which one do I want to progress with? Who do you talk to? How, how do you approach merging two performance review systems into one? Well, I mean, first I would uh, question the premise of your question. I'm not sure that the uh, thing you want to do is merge the systems. It depends the reason we're doing the M&A. Again, I get back to strategy. It may be that we've still got different, let's talk about sales, that we've got different sales forces or different sales tasks. And as a result, the reviews are going to reflect different objectives, different metrics, etc. So that's the first thing. You know, don't assume that we just have to make it vanilla ice cream. All right. That's, you know, man, again, managers must manage. They get paid, in my view, to make these judgments. The second thing is where we are going to bring these things together. My experience is that it's usually not an either or choice. This one's better than that one. Usually, if we're doing an M&A for the right reasons, we're creating something else. And the performance review process should reflect that. So it's usually going to be some third thing, not, uh, you know, not either or. And then again, I, I want to get back to basics and I want to emphasize this for our listeners. You know, one thing I think you'll appreciate as you get older and more experienced in business is how far you can go by doing the basics better than others, all right? Then all the other things that people talk about, I love that. you know, that's yeah. great. You can pick that from the Christmas tree, but get back to the basics. And here again, the basics are, what does this say about our target buyers? Who are they? Why and how do they buy? And at the end of the day, that's what a good performance review process in sales focuses on. The salesperson's interactions with the buyer and the buying journey. And after an M&A, typically, there are some changes there. You mentioned that people love working for companies and they leave managers. I think that is... You do exit interviews with people and almost always when they're dissatisfied, they're dissatisfied with individual managers that they've had. That connects to the aspect that you really also... Um, mention tremendously and put tremendous value on in your in your book is the training aspect and, and that is something i find critically underlooked because training is often not perceived as a process you know performance management that is a process hiring is a process but training just kind of floats around independently in many organizations and it's not not put so much value on because there's a training budget but there are no clear processes in place for training now of course, when we say that talents expect to work in companies that match their skills. Now, of course, when we merge, merge to companies, depending on strategy, we might yeah, there might be a tremendous amount of training involved in terms of processes, in terms of products, like you like you mentioned before, and all the skills can can tremendously change. Now, especially in sales, how can we anticipate uh, this challenge? How can we make sure that we're prepared to yeah, adequately train our team? Training in sales is very, very important for a couple of reasons. One reason is 
implicit in the data that I cited earlier, Toby, again, most, you know, most new salespeople start out not having majored in the subject. So they've got to learn. And again, I don't care whether we call that training development or something else. You've got to, you've got to do that. And by the way, this is reflected in the numbers. Companies around the world on average spend 20% more per capita per person on sales training than they do on any other business function, right? And in fact, and this is something that M&A managers need to recognize, when you look at turnover rates in sales, and then you look at the amount of money that is spent in hiring, in training and development, plus the opportunity cost inherent in getting a new salesperson up to productivity. Think about that lag effect after an M&A. That number annually is very often as big or bigger than the biggest capital expenditures in the company, but it rarely gets the same rigorous attention. So training is important, and it's important especially in M&A activities What I'm about to say, once I say it sounds obvious, all right, you'll say, duh, this guy teaches at Harvard. But trust me, a lot of smart, well-educated people forget this. In business, there is no such thing as performance in the abstract. That does not exist. There is no sort of platonic ideal of performance in business. In business, performance is only performance in our business, with our product, with our customers, at our price. And again, in an M&A situation, training is important there. What does the M&A mean for the value proposition that we can now sell versus what you were selling? What does it mean for changes in Mm. who gets involved? Think about M&As in tech. Very often the rationale for that M&A is we can now provide the solution, not just the product, but that usually changes who's doing Mm -hmm. the buying at target customers. And salespeople now have to deal with more senior people. That's a different conversation, different documentation, different tasks. You can't afford to just let people try to figure it out. That's where training and development is important. How do we assess an effective training culture and effective training processes if we're not so needy in the company? And how do we do that from the outside? I think what separates effective training processes in sales are basically a recognition of two things. The first is something that's true about adult learning in any business function. Once people are out of school and working in a company, most learning is what is very task-oriented learning. In other words, people in business are not studying for the final exam in my course. They're not studying for some test they're going to need to take to go to college. What that means is they tend to pay attention to information when they need it, not in some formal training seminar or classroom. And that just-in-time training 
is very, very important in adult learning. Now, this is an area where new technologies are and should be the seller's friend. There are more and more technologies out there that allow you to do just-in-time training. For example, in sales, salespeople pay most attention on their way to make a sales call and during the actual sales conversation. And we now have lots of technologies that can get them the information on the phone, on the iPad, et cetera. The second uh, element that I would cite is particularly important in sales, more important in sales than in many other functions. But learning in sales is a very, very good example of what the learning theorists call modeling behavior. And what they mean by that is that salespeople learn the most from watching the best of their peers perform the important sales tasks. They watch this and they say, you know, the way you answered that objection, that was clever. I hadn't thought of that. The way you framed price and the value proposition, boy, I'm going to do that next time. So you can see what part of the role in training is. Part of the role of a good training process is to accelerate that modeling behavior, accelerate the learning that people get from the best of their peers. And this brings us back to hiring. Good hires have a multiplier effect on an organization. It's not only their own performance, but their ability to contribute to that learning from modeling behavior And conversely, bad hires have a multiplier effect on the negative end. These are important decisions. You just very clearly differentiated sales as a behavioral task against, uh, for example, financial and analytical analytical tasks. Now, we're moving towards an industry and we're moving towards uh, a sales falcon where we seem to, or we, we get the illusion that everything can be measured just mentioned from discovery uh, to the sales process, we seem to be able to have data on everything. I know there's tools that analyze the voice in a sales conversation. There's tools that analyze your the quotes that you write. There's tools that, anal- tools that analyze. There's, there's tools for everything. And we seem to be able to put a number on everything. Yet sales is such an interconnected function within a company. Um, will the sales manager of the future, will it be an algorithm? Or do you think that it can never happen? Uh, no, I don't think it will be. An, and the reason for that is that buying has always been, you know, for thousands of years, has always been a social as well as an economic transaction. And I don't think that's going to change. Let me cite some data that may or may not surprise you. It tends to surprise other people. I'm going to use the United States as an (laughs) example. All right. If you look at the percentage of retail sales in the United States, that were done via e-commerce, you know, Amazon and everybody else. That number at the beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic, was about 11.1%. Now, when I ask executives, what do you think that number was? They typically give me estimates of 30 to 60%. In other words, they're not just a little bit off, There are orders of magnitude off. By the way, Mm -hmm. in Europe, where shopping patterns are different, the number is actually smaller. Now, what happened during the pandemic? Obviously, or at least it's obvious to me, when stores are closed, 
or when they're limited to 25 to 50% of their capacity. When people feel that if they walk into a store, they may catch a virus and die, obviously there's going to be more buying and selling online. But if you look at the second quarter of 2020, which so far, let's see what happens with the variants, so far as maximum lockdown conditions in the United States and Europe, e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales in the United States, 15%. In other words, it went up less than 5%, and it's been going down every quarter since then. So I don't think, I don't think machines or algorithms take the place of people long-term. Now, the other part of your question, though, is important. There's no doubt that what is going on in the world is a sustained data revolution. And you're exactly right. We've got more data about many more activities than we had in the past. And this is affecting sales in particular in a couple of ways. One is sales becomes more transparent to other functions in the company, especially finance. And as you know, given what you do at FinTalent, finance people can be annoying. Once they get data, they start to ask <laughs> questions and they begin to ask the sales leader questions about, well, how do you allocate this money? What is your cost to serve? The point I want to make is that the requirements for financial literacy in sales and marketing are increasing dramatically. And many sales leaders in particular yes. need to get better than that. Then I think the third and final comment I'll make about uh, use of data in general, the issue in most businesses today, not even 10 years from now, the issue is not data. They have more data than they know what to do with. The issue is, do you have good questions to ask of the data? That's the important issue. And that's what managers, in my opinion, get paid for. They get paid to know what are the important questions in our business? What will be the important question post-M&A, as opposed to what you see when you read a lot of articles about AI or data? They're basically about what I call interesting but marginal factoids. That's interesting, but it really doesn't make that big a difference in the business. Knowing the important questions about the important things in the business, that's step one then the data, and increasingly you can get the data if you know what you're looking for. Frank, with the experience that you have, and I think with the long-term long -term, uh, view that you have on the, on the discipline of sales, it's always very grounding for people like me that are more, still more in the beginning of our careers to actually have this view, because I think what you would use, emphasized many times in this conversation, looking at the basics of why are we doing this in the first place. It's so easy for us to get always caught up in the latest shiny new object, kind of a new technology. I think uh, blockchain is, is going through this yeah. uh, hype cycle right now where it used to be the, the hottest new shiny thing and now it, it looks like people are catching up that there's still a long way to go. And it's really refreshing to hear someone like you put it into context and to to remind us that we have to look at go back to the basics sometime and not just look at spreadsheets but actually look at the fundamental decisions we want to make in business and especially in M&A thank you so much for taking the time 
It was absolutely my, my pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.